Well, good morning. My name is Jason Weatherholt, and I'm the Family Life Minister here at Winter Road. And those are a few videos that we uh, made this summer for our week of junior high camp. And uh, we thought it'd be fun to share a couple of them with you. But our, our week of camp uh, was themed weird. Uh, and we've kind of borrowed that theme for the next couple weeks here in our services, both in the main service and in uh, Student Live. And if you've ever spent a week with a whole big bunch of junior high students, you understand just how timely that theme of weird exactly was. And uh, we looked at each day of camp, we looked at a parable that Jesus taught. Uh, because, you know, the, the ways of Jesus are just a little strange, are they not? I mean, Jesus, you know, has a rich guy who comes to him and, and asks about eternal life. And Jesus tells him to go sell everything and give it away. And, and Jesus is always hanging out with the wrong people and saying the wrong thing. And then he tells these stories, these parables where in order to understand a parable, you kind of have to flip it on its head, right? Because, because the point of a parable oftentimes is that the exact opposite thing, the conventional wisdom is off. And so, uh, so we're going to look at that over the next three weeks. Um, and like I said, here and in student life, we're studying the exact same parable. So hopefully, if you have a fifth through twelfth grade, you can go home on Sunday and actually have a conversation about the things that we're all working on together. But before we start that, I just need to ask... How many have seen at least one Bat movie this week? All right, show them proud, all right? How many saw? All right, not as many as I thought we would have. Now, how many, how many went and saw a midnight premiere of a certain Bat movie? All right, we still have quite a few of us there. I have to tell you that Windsor Road, I don't know about the Beverly, but Windsor Road was extremely well represented at the Savoy 16 on Thursday night. I mean, you couldn't walk 10 feet in that lobby without bumping into somebody from our church. So, um, well, there were several of us in the office that had decided, you know, they were going to show, start at six o'clock and show all the three new Christian Bale movies that we were going to go do that. So there were a bunch of us from the office that did that. And then there were a couple of us, a couple friends and I, who decided that that just somehow wasn't enough, you know, to go see all those movies. And we thought we should start at like eight in the morning, and watched the four, uh, the other four Batman movies. Now, we didn't get the Adam West from the 60s, but we watched those first four Batman movies. And uh, I got to tell you, it was painful. Hours four through eight. You know, now that you've seen the new Batman movies, those, those old ones with, you know, with Mr. Freeze and some of those things, it, it, was, it was a rough go of it. But, uh, but anyway, we, uh, we had this conversation with our high school students on Wednesday night. We have the high schoolers over at our house on Wednesday nights during the summer, and we posed this question to them of, why are we so captivated, so enamored by fantasy literature and, and by, uh, you know, superhero movies and all that kind of stuff? Why does that stuff grab our hearts so much? And we had this great discussion about all of that. And I think in some ways the answer to that is the same as why the stories of Jesus, the parables that he teaches, just pique our curiosity so much. See, I think, you know, we live these up and down lives, right? So uh, today, you know, today something goes well for me at work and, and it's an up day and things are great and stuff. And then tomorrow the economy, the stock market, whatever dips a little bit. And all of a sudden my life is over and I don't know what's going to happen. But then tomorrow someone at Starbucks is kind to me and lied. And now it's an up day again, right? We just kind of have this roller coaster of emotions sometimes that we live with. And, and so I, I think that what happens is I think that there's something inside of us that just begs for good to be brought into evil. 
I think there's something that inside of us that just begs for light to come into darkness. I think there's something in us that is just so motivated that just wants to see fairness brought to injustice. And so whether it is a lion in a book fighting alongside an army, or it's a movie where a guy puts on a cape and then beats the tar out of bad guys at night, or whatever it is, we are just so captivated by these stories, by things being set right. So this morning, we're going to take a look at what is, in my humble opinion, quite possibly the weirdest parable that Jesus ever taught. All right, I'll just give you a fair warning about that. I think that this is one of the strangest stories that Jesus ever told us. Okay, in fact, when we decided on what uh, parables we were going to look at at camp, we sent those out to the speakers uh, back in March. And about two weeks before camp, so about a month ago, one of the speakers emailed us and said, I don't want to talk about this one now. I don't understand it. It's weird. You know, (laughs) it was like, well, did you read it? You know, because like at the end of this one, Jesus explains the parable. He doesn't always do that. So I think, you know, it should be relatively easy for us to grasp. But, but it just gives you, all right, uh, a, a little bit of kind of the strangeness here. So we're going to be in Luke 16, all right? Luke is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, John. And then uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, that's page 740 in those Bibles that are in the chairs. All right, Luke chapter 16. And let me give you a little context as you flip there, okay? So we are towards the end of Jesus' life and ministry here. And, and I think if, if you read one of the gospel accounts all the way through, you will see when you get to the end of this, there is just a sense of urgency in Jesus' teaching. I mean, you can just taste it, uh, uh, how, how he is coming to an end here. And he's traveling from Galilee, uh, down to Jerusalem. And so uh, he is sharing some of these teachings along the way. He's constantly being questioned. People are asking, you know, why do you say the things you say? Why do you hang out with the people you hang out with? Well, you're hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. What's going on with all that? And then in Luke 15, Jesus tells these series of three lost stories that maybe you've read before. Uh, he tells a story about a lost sheep and a shepherd who goes after that sheep. He tells about a lost coin and a celebration that happens when it's found. And then he tells about the lost or prodigal son, which is a story that we talk about quite a bit. And then without taking a break, without any other questions coming, without anything else, Jesus launches into a new story, and that's where we pick up. Luke chapter 16, verse 1, and here's what it says. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. That sounds like some of us, right? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Now, remember that the parables Jesus tells, these are fictional. I mean, it's not intended to be a true story, but it also helps to understand it if we look at the details in here and try to kind of grasp what he's getting at. So this man that he's talking about, this manager, you know, we probably have a master who has so, such great wealth, so many resources that he's not able to oversee every detail. So he's got a manager who kind of oversees things for him. It's probably an employee, not a slave. If it were a slave, he probably would have been beaten or worse or demoted or whatever. Um, instead, he is on the brink of being fired. So he's probably an employee. You know, if we're going to come back to Batman here, which this week doesn't everything come back to Batman, right? But, you know, if we're going to come back to Batman here, maybe Alfred gives us a decent picture into this of somebody who's kind of a steward who's overseeing things for them. But he hears, the owner of all this hears that he's being cheated. 
You know that this guy is mismanaging his resources. So he calls him in to account for that. He basically says, you know, you go get all your QuickBook files, all your Excel spreadsheets, everything else. You bring that all in here. And before you clean out your desk, let's talk about it. All right? And there's no denial in the story from this manager. So probably the charges are true. And and desperate times, you know, call for desperate measures. He decides that he's going to go out and try to make nice with everybody he possibly can. Verse 5, so he, the manager, called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly. That's an interesting thing, sit down quickly, right? That gives us an idea that he actually is being dishonest here because he wants to get to all the customers before they find out he's been fired. All right, sit down quickly and make, make it 400. Then he said to the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now, the debt amounts here are, are very large. And, and sometimes it's really hard for us to kind of monetize exactly what that might mean for us today. But, but let's say it this way, all right? 800 gallons of olive oil would probably be the equivalent to about three years' wages for the average worker in their time. So you can bring that into your own context, right? The, av- you know, the average worker, what they would make in the course of three years, that's what we're talking about is amount, amount of money here. A thousand bushels of wheat, that would be over seven years of wages. So both of those are reduced by about the same amount. They're both reduced by over two years' wages. So no one in this story is poverty-stricken. We are talking about people who have great means in this parable. And and are you kind of catching the absurdity of what's going on here? Here, let Let me do this. All right, Steve, you want to help me out here real quick? All right, so this is my friend Steve. Come on up here. All right, so Steve is, is a driven type A master of a man, right, Steve? I mean, if you were, you know, if you hired him at your company, he would be CEO of your company within three years, all right? Even if that's your job. So watch out. Be careful, right? Incidentally, that's what we all think about ourselves, right? I mean, all of us think, well, if, I mean, if I wanted to be CEO, I could be. I mean, I'm just that, mom said I was just that smart, right? All right, so, so Steve is the big, large, and in charge master. I, you know what, Steve, why don't you come here? All right, we're going to do two, I didn't, these guys just both happen to sit close. This is Steve and Steve. Don't get confused. All right, so this is Steve, all right? He is a sleazy, untrustworthy manager guy. All right. Sorry, Carrie. Sorry. All right, so we got these two guys. So Steve here, you guys aren't confused, right? Okay, you got them? All right. So Steve hears that Steve is mismanaging his wealth and his property and his resources, and he gets mad about it because he's a high-powered man, right? Right. And he used to be a cop. So watch out. He probably carries, he might have a gun right now. All right? So Steve is, you know, and he says, listen, we got a problem here. You're going to come in because you've been mismanaging my stuff, and we're going to talk about it. So what does Steve do? Well, Steve thinks, if I go and get the files and tell him about it, then it's going to prove I've been mismanaging his stuff, right? So before I go do that, before I go do that, I should go talk to some of the other customers, or I should go talk to some of his customers, and then maybe I can make enough friends that I'll be able to you know, I'll be able to fall on my feet and get back up, right? Okay, so here, all right, you guys, thank you. Well done, guys, you're great, you're great. So let's read exactly what happens. All right, we move down to verse eight. The master, Steve, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Does it seem odd to you yet? All right, 
this is why people oftentimes, you know, you go to read about this one and commentators notoriously stay away from this parable because they don't want to deal with it. There are a couple things on this slide that should jump out to you. You know, first he gets commended for acting shrewdly. Um, and then look at these two statements Jesus makes. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And then he says this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. That's Jesus talking, right? I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Interesting, huh? Couple of interesting statements. So, so let me, let me let's, let's try to figure out what we're talking about here. Now, there are a couple of possibilities going on between, uh, you know, what, what the manager here is doing with those customers. So one possibility is that the master has been charging interest uh, on his customer's money here. And, and Mosaic law, back in the Old Testament, Mosaic law strictly forbid Jews from charging interest to other Jews. That was a huge deal. And so maybe what the manager does is he goes and he says, let's get rid of the interest. You know, let's just take that off of your bills. In which case, the customers are super happy, right? Because they just owe less money. And the master is now, you know, he, he's now following, observing the Old Testament law. So he's in a good spot too. So everybody's happy, right? It's also possible that maybe there was a commission going on here. That maybe the way that this manager makes his living is by uh, charging extra money on the, the money he's collecting. You know, that's his commission and that's how he makes a living. And so he's just gone and cut his commission. As he figures, what good is commission when I've been fired from the job anyway? So now I'll just make everybody happy. Well, the master hasn't lost anything and the customers have less to pay, so everybody's happy. Or it's possible also that, that he kind of views himself like a collections officer. And he goes to some of the people who owe huge amounts that he knows might not be able to pay those amounts back. So he says, you know what, let's just cut those amounts by a bunch. And that way we'll actually collect something as opposed to collecting nothing. And we don't know exactly what it is that's happening here. All right, remember it's an illustration, but we still ask, why is this steward praised? Because either he acted justly, you know, he cut a commission or he cut, a, uh, um, he cut interest, in which case he's acting justly and being effective, or he has actually cut some of his master's money that should have been collected, in which case he's acting unjustly, but uh, is also effective in what he does. Add to that those two strange statements that Jesus makes. He says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. See, what he's saying is people in this world give more thought to their own physical well-being than do God's people give thought to their spiritual well-being. Hmm, that's interesting for us to hear, isn't it? You think about the time that we spend in a gym working out versus the time that we spend in our Bible or in times of private worship. That's convicting, isn't it? Verse 9, you know, he says, use worldly wealth to gain friends. Maybe this, I found this great paraphrase of this verse. It says it this way. It says, put yourself in a good position through your use of money, which so easily leads you astray, so that when this age is over, God will receive you into his eternal dwelling. That helps to clarify it a little bit, doesn't it? Money so easily leads us astray. 
So let's use it for kingdom purposes, things that actually change and make a difference in lives rather than for our own personal pursuits. This parable is about the wise use of our resources in light of eternity. Knowing what is coming someday, how will you use your resources? Will you use them wisely or will you use them foolishly? Whether the manager cuts his own profits or he cuts his bosses, okay, he acts in a way that makes the customers happy with both of them, and he's praised for that. Zacchaeus is going to epitomize this for us in a couple of chapters. In Luke 19, we have the story, maybe you know, maybe you know the story of Zacchaeus because you memorized the song when you were in VBS as a kid or whatever, right? But, but Zacchaeus is this guy uh, who's a chief tax collector, so he makes a living, by overcharging people. He goes and he charges taxes from somebody and he takes a little bit extra and that's how he's able to earn his livelihood. And he's a short man and so he can't see Jesus walking by and he gets up in a tree and he looks down. Jesus calls him out and they have this great conversation where Zacchaeus says, you know what, if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay it back four times as much. The temporary pales in comparison to eternity. But I think that sometimes for us, a sense of urgency is difficult. I mean, if you think about the first century world, life was pretty tough for them. There was a tendency, I guess, in some ways to be kind of patient with today. Because when your today is pretty crummy, and when you don't have the ideals that we have now about, well, I'll just be able to, if I work hard, if I get better grades, I can go to a great school. If I just work a little harder, I can get promoted or make more money. If you just assume that the lot in life you have is what you're always going to have, because it's what your dad did and what your dad before, what his dad before him did, then you tend to kind of get, you know, a, a pretty poor view of life today. But you begin kind of being urgent about eternity. You develop a sense of really looking forward to something better. Think about us. Isn't it the exact opposite for us? I mean, when your today isn't so bad, you know, when you have tons of options and things that you could be doing and ways you could spend your money, you tend to be kind of urgent about today. Oh, I wonder what I'll do. I wonder where I'll go out to eat for lunch. I wonder what I'll get involved in. I wonder what vacation we'll plan next. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. And we get pretty patient. We get pretty lackadaisical about eternity when today is not so bad for us. Verse 10, Jesus says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, I don't know about you, but these verses actually hurt just a little bit when I read them, okay? Uh, I've always been a big fan of the prayers that are like, bless me so I can bless others, has anybody ever said this kind of thing yourself? Like, like, oh, dear Lord, please give me $5 million so that I can share some of it with other people, right? I mean, those are the kinds of things that we pray on a regular basis, you know? And, and I sometimes, I don't want to, I, I won't say that God laughs at your prayers, all right? We'll just talk about me right now, okay? But I think that sometimes God has to snicker a little bit about those things that go through my heart and my mind like that. I think that God has to look at my life and say, Jason, I see how selfish you are with $5. Why would I ever burden you with $5 million? 
okay? I've seen how you use what you have. Why would I squander riches on you when I can only assume you would use it all the more foolishly? See, and as you read Luke's gospel, you're gonna find that there's, there's very little love loss between Luke and those who are rich. Now, there are a few characters in Luke who, who, are, who have wealth and who share it and they get a pass. But by and large, Luke is not extremely kind to those who have great resources. If you kind of wonder his perspective, then this afternoon, keep reading Luke 16. You're going to read about a story, Rich Man and Lazarus, and you'll kind of see what he thinks about those who have and don't share. Okay, but I don't even think money is the real issue here. I think it's us that is the problem. See, money has no greater value than what your heart attaches to it. Money is worth nothing more than you make it worth by your constant pursuit of it, your constant thinking about it, your constant ideas and schemes to get more of it. I don't know how many of you watch ESPN, but I have been blown away lately at the, watching the contract negotiations for professional athletes. I don't know if anybody else has been following this, particularly uh, NFL players right now, okay? And so uh, I, was, uh, um, I, I was watching some ESPN a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about Drew Brees, a quarterback for the Saints, and his contract negotiations. And man, they were, they were really locked up. You know, they were really at a standstill because because Drew was set to make like, I don't know, something like 19.3 million, but he was really fighting hard to make like 20.1 million, you know? And it was a big negotiation back and forth about these dollar amounts and stuff like that, okay? And, and I don't wanna, I, I don't want that to be a blanket criticism, okay? Drew Brees and his wife do a ton of great stuff in New Orleans and all that kind of stuff, okay? I recognize that. And to be honest, I don't even think money is at the heart of that issue. I really don't think when they're negotiating, about a million dollars a year over five years, when you're talking about a $20 million per year contract, I don't think money's the issue. I don't think they needed another $5 million. You know what I think is the issue there? I think Drew is saying, well, well, Tom Brady makes 18 million a year and Peyton Manning makes 19 million a year and I want you to tell me that I'm worth more to you than they are to their teams. I think it's a heart issue that's happening here. I think at its core, money is a heart issue. Jesus goes on in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says that same thing a couple of other times. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves. Wouldn't that be a painful moment while Jesus is teaching, you know, and you've heard him talking about, you know, the lost uh, uh, parables, you know, that are about bringing people back and how much God rejoices. And then he starts to tell this other thing and you kind of laugh at him a little bit and he turns around and he points at you and he says, it's about you, by the way. Just so you know, I'm talking exactly about you and your life. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And hopefully this parable just got a little bit easier for us to understand as we see Jesus' explanation and even application of it. I have to tell you, a couple weeks ago at our week of junior high camp, I got a major attitude check, a major kind of heart check in the midst of this. Um, 
Going into camp, we had a couple of different changes that happened, and, uh, and so my role for the first couple of days of camp was uh, I played uh, bass guitar in the worship band, and so I had, you know, sessions and practices and stuff, and, and I felt like, I mean, this, certainly this wasn't the case, but I felt like every minute that I wasn't on stage playing guitar, I sat in front of our media computer in the back of the room because the person who was running stuff needed help to program things. And so I sat every day and just programmed all the slides and got everything ready. And I'll be honest with you, I got a little pouty about it, okay? I was a little bit frustrated at the role that I was playing because I've done enough camps to know, and maybe you know this, if you are not dunking kids in the pool on Monday or out playing basketball or goofing around with them or whatever— Come Thursday, when they start, God's tugging on their heart to make decisions for Christ or for ministry or a bunch of other things, you're not going to be the one who's having those conversations with them because you haven't been a part of their lives all week long. And so here I was really grumpy about what I'm doing. And I I tell you what, I woke up one morning and just had this like, this kind of one of those moments where you just cut to the heart. And I just felt so clearly God was saying to me, I have you doing what I need you to do, the thing that you, the role you can play at this week of camp. Because if those slides aren't right or whatever else, then we let Satan get a foothold in our worship services with the distractions and other things that are going on. And so guess what happened? A couple days later at camp, some of our younger faculty members got to have some amazing conversations with students about baptism and stuff. Some of our younger faculty members whose baptisms I was a part of along the way got to have these really cool conversations, got to see lives changed, and I was just blown away. Heart issues, right? Heart issues. And let's be clear, this parable is specifically about money. But as we look to apply it in our lives, I think that, that serving two masters might be about far more than just money in your life. See, I'm willing to bet that each one of us in this room worships somewhere other than Windsor Road on a regular basis. See, I don't know about you, I can turn just about anything uh, in my life into a master, whether it is technology or it's politics or it's movies or it's apps on our phones or, or it's trivia or it's music or it's anything else. Our ability to be mastered, our ability to bow down and worship something is incredible, is it not? Here's what I think that we look and sound like, all right? We've got a couple things up here. Here's what I think this kind of looks like in our life on a regular basis. I think that some of us literally get down in front of money, and we say something like this. We say, oh, sweet money, okay? We all know that we can't do anything without you, and you make the world go around. And we jokingly say things like, we know money can't buy happiness, but we'd rather cry in our Porsche, or, you know, whatever else, but... But those things are truer than we like to admit. And I mean, how will my wife and my kids respect me if I don't make more of you? And how can my kids only go to Disney twice during their childhood when all their friends go every two or three years? And so this next season of work might be busy and I might have to make sacrifices at home and work harder. But I'm sure my family will know that I was just doing it for them, right? And hey, you know, if I can just earn more of you, then I will share it with others. Promise. 
Or maybe for you, it's some pets that run around in your house. Okay? Maybe you say, oh, Fido, you know, or, or Snoopy. This is the only one I could find last night in our house. Oh, Snoopy. Okay, in your accelerated seven to one years of life, I know that time is fleeting. Okay, and hey, people with pets live longer anyway, right? So I'm doing us both a favor. And the next time one of those Sarah McLaughlin commercials comes on TV, I get to feel a smug sense of superiority because I have you in my house. Okay, who cares if other relationships come and go? You know, who cares if I push people away? It's you and me. Whatever the cost, okay, whether it's financial or relational, I will make sure you know that you are prized. Well, as much as you can possibly know that, but not to mention the fact that you being in my life will keep away the deathly allergic family life minister anyway. So, (laughs) sorry. Or maybe... Maybe it's those beautiful little ones that God has entrusted in our care. You know, maybe we say something like, oh, kids, there's no greater treasure that I have in life so long as you do not break my iPhone. And, and since I grew up in a modest home where I learned about patience and hard work and saving, I will do everything in my power to make sure you never have to. Who cares if I save or I plan or I pay off? You will never forget those vacations, will you? No matter, I'm going to make you into the athlete I never was. (laughs) And sure, we could sponsor a compassion kid as a family, or we could look for creative ways to give together, but that $38 a month is also one more meal at Chili's. And experiences are the best thing I can give you, right? Or maybe it's technology. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you say, oh, sweet technology. Okay, I know that I only get 936 Saturdays. From the, from the week that my child is born till the week they live my house, I only get 936 Saturdays. But Pinterest is not going to pin itself. Actually, I don't know anything about Pinterest. I'm totally, I'm I'm messing around. If I don't play words with friends today, then those seven open games I have, well, we'll have to wait until tomorrow. And if I don't deprive my family of a little bit of time each evening to play some games online or to search through a few articles, what will I ever have to talk to my coworkers whom I don't really like that much anyway, about at work tomorrow. Okay, this is absurd, right? I mean, if you knew someone who did this, you would have them locked up. But here's the truth. I think you do a little bit of this every single day. Okay, and I don't think, maybe you don't miss a week at Windsor Road, but you don't miss a day Worshiping at the church of love or Facebook or people-pleasing, partying, telling dirty jokes, Twitter, gossip, romance novels, alcohol, shopping, ESPN, posting endless political cartoons on every social network. And the list goes on. And some of those things are obviously sinful and you need to cut them out of your life right now. Some of them are not bad in and of themselves. They're just really 
terrible masters. And that's the issue for us. Last month when I was down in the Dominican Republic, uh, and I'm really excited, next week I'm going to share a bunch about uh, our trip to the Dominican and a little trip I took over to Haiti as well. Uh, but, but one evening, one of our high school students who was on the trip was just really kind of um, brokenhearted about everything that she had seen and just the poverty and what the conditions people were living in and stuff. And just, uh, we went up to the roof to talk. And so the roof of the compound that we're at, and you can look out at the very, very poor neighborhood. You can look out at the hills and the mountains around. You can, you know, look out at the beautiful sky and all of that. And we're up there talking. She just said, through tears, why? Why? Why was, why were they born in a dump and I was born in the suburbs? It's all so unfair. And I looked at her and I said, well, first, yes, you're right. It is extremely unfair. And I said, one of the, one of the easier points in this to understand is that, you know, they were born in a place where the government corruption was allowed just to run rampant. People have done what they wanted. And while we still have plenty of corruption in ours, there are at least some systems of checks and balances. But I said, the deeper issue of what you're wrestling through here with, why were they born in this neighborhood and I was born in the neighborhood I was born in, that's one you're going to struggle with for the rest of your life. I said, here's the thing. What you cannot deny in all of this is that you have been blessed for whatever reason God decided to put you where he did with the resources you have and the life that you are living right now. So you better share. You better take those resources that you have to make a difference in the world on behalf of God. James 1.27 says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What master are you serving? Okay, at whose feet are you worshiping on a regular basis? We're gonna transition into a time of communion here as the band comes forward. We're gonna sing one more song and then we'll take communion together. And I think communion is an incredible time for us to get up from the place that we have been worshiping, whether that's at the feet of our girlfriend or at the feet of our 401k or grad school or whatever else it is, to get up from that and to take a step over to the foot of the cross and then to worship the only one who is actually worthy of it. Let's pray.